What if I told you that the kingdom of God is like rotting fish that a woman took and hid in some liquid, in some broth, until it, it had become a smelly and salty sauce? Okay, so it doesn't really say anywhere in the Gospels that the kingdom of God is like rotting fish or like fish sauce. But this image to me is helpful and striking and evocative as we dive into a story about what the kingdom of God looks like. And it's found in Luke 13. Before we get there, though, it's important to note the lead up to this story. Starting in Luke 9, we have the first disciples commissioned. Then there's this huge meal, the feeding of the 5,000. Then this miraculous experience called the Transfiguration, where Jesus is on the mountain with some of his disciples and a cloud comes and Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus somehow. And the voice of the father calls out to Jesus, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Then later on in Luke 9, Jesus turns his face like flint toward Jerusalem with a focused and resolute mission ahead of him. And immediately following this, he's rejected by a Samaritan village and the disciples are angry and they ask if they should call down fire from heaven to destroy the village. They've got this fresh image in mind of Moses and Elijah. Moses, who's this legendary figure with stories of the Red Sea crossing and the escape from Egypt and the plagues and the miracles. And we have Elijah, who called down fire from heaven when the false prophets of Baal were rejecting God. And so these early learners, these disciples, have assumed something about the kingdom of God. It's big and it's bold. These are big stories, big signs, and all throughout the Gospels are crowds and Jesus' own disciples who want signs and wonders and miracles from Jesus. If only he would just prove himself and his kingdom, then we'd believe. And if we're honest, we're probably a little bit like these crowds and these disciples. We love the gut-wrenching stories that melt our hearts and speak of amazing transformation. We love being part of something big and something energizing and something inspiring. But what is the kingdom like? In Luke 13, verses 20 and 21, in one of the smallest parables Jesus offers, he says this. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So uh, I do a lot of relational work, a lot of connecting with, with people, and a lot of uh, communi communication work, a lot of ideas and synthesizing ideas and transitional ideas and communicating them. And so one of the ways that I detach from that and take a break and, and have some restful activity is I play with food. I've got a bit of a culinary background. Uh, I love to cook. But in recent years, I have uh, found my way into baking and the love of baking. And having kids, baking is one of those fun activities. Uh, I would say it's fun. My wife, maybe not so much. Because we like to get in the kitchen and make a royal mess. All the bowls and spatulas and mixers dirty uh, because there's something wonderful and tactile and experiential about baking together. At this point, my kids have basically memorized the core ingredients for things like waffles and pancakes. They instinctively move to the pantry to get out what is needed when it's time to bake. 
the author of one of the best books, I would say, on parables out there. His name is Klein Snodgrass. He offers us this. He says, leaven is not the same as yeast, the small substance we use to cause leavening. In the ancient world, leaven was merely fermenting dough. Some fermented dough is kept back from baking and is used to ferment the next batch. So let's clarify a few terms here. Yeast. Maybe you, uh, you have some of this yeast in your freezer or your cupboard or something. This is an isolated ingredient that helps the dough rise. And, and it's, it's tiny. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, these these are tiny little things, and and if you're into baking even a little, you probably have some of this. Uh, and uh, these little beads of yeasty goodness help the dough rise. Leaven leaven is similar to yeast and can often be used synonymously with yeast in many cases. But where it's different is that it often describes the function rather than the product to leaven something is to infuse it with a kind of yeast so that it rises and expands. Leaven then is a process. Sourdough. Sourdough is another term here. If you know someone who bakes with sourdough or maybe you picked it up during the pandemic like so many cool kids did, uh, sourdough is a different, is a kind of bread uh, that you don't add yeast to. Uh, that's because sourdough comes with a dough uh, that is naturally occurring, uh, has naturally occurring wild yeast, wild ferment in it. A food historian, Michael Pollan, uh, describes the, the, the ancient world's first sourdough this way. Some ancient civilization made a porridge of pulverized grain and water, but some of it got left out and it began to ferment, to rot, to bubble and grow. And what we were, what they would have been seeing, or not seeing actually, was a tiny microbial probiotic culture developing and transforming this porridge into fermented dough, which then they would have baked and made into the world's first sourdough. This last term then is fermentation. In the Greek, the word is zume, uh, ferment, and guess what? It's actually the Greek word in this parable. When we see the word leaven, the word zume is actually in mind, ferment. When we think about fermentation, we've got beer, and we've got cheese, and we've got kimchi, and we've got yogurt, and kombucha, and sourdough bread, and fish sauce, and yes, even the kingdom of God. If you consider that fermentation is a kind of a rotting process, it might be really strange, a really strange image for us to consider that this kingdom somehow brings life through rotting. To make sense of this, let's return to uh, food historian Michael Pollan, who says, if I gave you a bag of flour and a bag of water and you had nothing else to live on, you could live for a while, but then you'd die. But if you take that same bag of flour and water and bake it into bread, you can live indefinitely. So what is happening that we're taking something that won't keep us alive and we're turning it into something that will keep us alive? Somehow through this process of fermentation, good things happen. Transformation occurs. First, the ingredients grow. There's physical growth and expansion of the ingredients, which is its own kind of little miracle of abundance. Second, the ingredients transform. The tiny culture of microbes is actually transforming the host ingredients into something different, something new, something more nutritious, something more life-giving. Third, it's a wild process. Sure, you can measure it, and there's some baking principles to something like a sourdough process, but it's a much more wild and untamed process than modern bread making. 
And all this points to a small and subversive process. There's nothing big or obvious at work. If you stand and stare at a sourdough starter for a while, you might see bubbles, but that's about it. And yet beyond what our eyes can capture, something incredible is happening beneath the surface, subverting the very ingredients. So how is this like the kingdom of God? I'd suggest all of it. All of it's like the kingdom of God. The kingdom grows when the wild ferment is embedded and embodied in the dough, in the, in the culture. It has no effect when it's set aside on the counter. Growth comes when the, the ferment or leaven is worked into the dough, into the host culture. Consider the story of the Babylonian exile. The people wanted to say set apart, different, distinct, distant. But God's message to these exiles in Jeremiah is to invest to embody, to lay down roots, to plant gardens, to become neighbors, to connect. Second, somehow this wild ferment transforms these host ingredients from something that won't bring life to something that will bring life. That sounds a lot like good news to me. I've often heard people say, and when considering things, or considering maybe the, the problem of evil, for example, that if God is good, why doesn't he just wipe out all the bad people and keep all the good people? But I wonder if God is playing the long game of fermentation. Slowly over time, this zume, this fermentation, and the work of the Holy Spirit is cascading through the world, embedding, embodying, investing. And we, as God's people, are called to be transformed and to be agents of transformation. So we are called to be fermented, and we are called to be agents of fermentation. Third, we can't talk about the Holy Spirit without recognizing that our Holy Spirit is a bit on the wild side. I'm, I might liken the Holy Spirit to an Enneagram 7. You can't always contain their new ideas or their ingenuity or innovative ways. Sometimes you just have to follow their lead, yield to their wild ways. I know this because I'm married to a 7. And again, we are reminded in one of the smallest parables of Jesus that the kingdom of God is small somehow, like leaven in the hands of a skilled baker. And it's subversive and it's working its way through the whole dough as it changes it from the inside out. So what does this look like tangibly, practically in our personal lives, in our communities here at Elevation? I read somewhere this week that it begins with us. We are like the dough, and even just a bit of God's grace can take root and transform our lives. Somehow, when we're met with grace, welcomed with grace, and even just a smidge of grace touches our lives, it can open us up to be more gracious people who extend it more easily to others. Growth, then, is slow and patient, it's not a race to some level of theological excellence. We ought not to be in a rush to read our Bibles front to back so that we can have all the right answers. We're not called to quicken ourselves to perfection. No, we're like clay in the hands of a potter as he slowly molds and makes us. We're like dough in the baker's hands as she slowly folds and kneads us and needs into our lives joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It does, however, require some level of immersion. It's immersion in a community. It's immersion in God's word. It's immersion in sacred rhythms of prayer and reflecting and listening. Set apart on its own, the fermented leaven dies. And so we as are transformed through this transformative process of holy fermentation. And then we become agents of 
transformation and fermentation in our own contexts, to our host culture, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, at our local parks, and in all the ways we live and work and play and pray throughout our week, we become wild zume, part of the leavening work of the kingdom of God. But it only really happens if we invest, if we incarnate, if we lean in, if we embody this transformation to those around us. This means it's incredibly relational. So I've got a couple ways that I see this playing out maybe here at Elevation. You might consider neighbors groups. If we look at neighbors groups as a kind of uh, good and hopeful example of this in our city, just as we are enfolded into a community of neighbors and transformed by the wild Holy Spirit, so too does this community of microorganisms get enfolded into a broader neighborhood and begin to transform our host culture. And just as our individual neighborhoods experience the power uh, of fermentation, so our cities are part of this fermenting process. We're not talking about a march for Jesus or taking back our classrooms or our environments for Jesus. Those are neither patient nor subversive, as we see in this parable. We're talking about micro-relational culture change. When things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness are slowly woven into our surroundings as they are woven into us, as we experience the fermentation of the Holy Spirit, then our surroundings, our neighbors, our neighborhoods Um, experience the fermentation of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is uh, what a friend of mine calls micro-neighborliness. He, a pastor and professor friend of mine, Steve McDowell, talks about this this concept of micro-neighborliness, which he describes as the small, patient, and practical ways that we pivot toward our localities and the people that we share them with. It's little things like neighborhood bonfires or small-scale street parties or hyper-local front porch music festivals or community gardens or something as simple as setting up a picnic table on your front lawn and pivoting to inviting neighbors to eat there with you. This is something we did in Windsor. We put up a a picnic table on our front lawn. We began to pivot from backyard to front yard. We would sit and eat outside on our front yard uh, regularly. And anytime neighbors would walk by, we lived in a very walkable community. We just invite them, you know, hey, you want some, you want to hang out with us, uh, especially if we knew them. And some of our neighbors more easily clung to this idea and joined us and some did not. And that's okay. Uh, another example of this would be a community garden that uh, I started in Sarnia, where we lived in this neighborhood, and I wanted to see how I could bring neighbors together out of their isolation, out of their fragment, fragmented and, and disconnected lives, where often people are just coming and going in their lives and not actually interacting with each other. And a, and a community garden uh, in the neighborhood was one way of getting neighbors out to garden alongside of each other to invest in the neighborhood to to do something hopeful together. And so I worked with the city to get a community garden launched in Hannah Park in Sarnia. And uh, and even when we left Sarnia and moved to Windsor, we were able to pass that off to other neighbors, uh, friends of ours who had moved into the neighborhood. And that garden is still going on today and it still speaks to hope. It's still this micro neighborly investment that over time says to the neighborhood, this park matters. It says to uh, kids and families, uh, we care about this neighborhood. We're paying attention. We're, we're, we're doing this together. It says to, uh, to food insecurity, here is a way we can solve problems together. Uh, 
Steve McDowell says, if we aren't careful, large, elaborate ideas paired with a lack of margin in the daily rhythms of our lives can overwhelm us into passivity. Too often, big ideas, things that require a lot of us actually paralyze us and leave us passive. And so how can we pivot to small ideas, to micro ideas that actually we have space for in our lives and that over time they build and and culminate into something beautiful and wonderful and kingdom-like. The third thing is reimagining success. Again, we must come back to the story of Luke and the Gospels at large, to a people wanting big signs and wonders, to disciples that misunderstand Jesus and want to call down fire to smite the Samaritans that rejected him. Yes, there are examples of big wonders and miracles, water into wine for a whole wedding or the feeding stories of thousands. But more often than not, even Jesus' miracles were small in scale, one person at a time, one ailment. Uh, one momentary uh, relational interaction. And if the imagery of this parable offers us anything, it's that the small and the unimpressive is somehow the way of the kingdom. Maybe it speaks to meekness instead of might. But I would contend that it's an invitation for us to reimagine our definition of success. Back at our fishbowl conversation, the first question asked uh, was about success, and Irv offered us a take with a bit of a smirk. Success is numerical growth and big crowds, he said. Success is big operations and dynamic programs. And inasmuch as he was being subversively sarcastic, in truth, we actually tend to believe these to be true. We believe that a church with 300 people is better than in church with 100 people because 200 more people chose to attend to be part of it. So it must be better. It must be more successful. It must have better programs. It must have more that it can offer. But that definition of success can easily lead us to some unhealthy places. I want to leave with two thoughts um, and, and hopefully we can have some, some uh, life-giving conversation afterwards. First is what Steve McDowell offers. He says, micro-neighborliness is having a profound impact on our cities. It is moving people beyond apathy. <clears throat> it is sparking subtle ripple effects of change, kindness, and generosity. And it is inspiring others to discern their own activity in the local context that they inhabit. While big stories get most of the attention, and don't get me wrong, we need those stories too, beautiful, disarming things are happening through small acts of neighborliness. And the second picture comes from uh, Howard Snyder, uh, a professor and theologian and author. He says, a plant and yeast, these are figures from life. The same God who hid life in the mustard seed and in the yeast spore is daily working imperceptibly by the Spirit to reconcile all things in Jesus Christ. That's how the kingdom grows. The beginnings are small and unimpressive, but growth comes and the kingdom advances and people are surprised. May we be people who open up our hands to beginnings that are small and unimpressive. And may the kingdom come and grow in our midst and may we be surprised.